Hello and welcome to Back to Britpop, it's me Chris. On this episode I'm delighted to be joined by Mark Shearer of the band Octopus. Octopus were formed in 1993 and was signed to Food Records. They released four singles and the album from A to B in 96. It's a really fantastic and candid interview with Mark. He goes into great detail about his experiences of being in the band and just being in the music industry uh, through the 90s and all the highs and lows of the era. I think you're going to really enjoy it. As per the norm, I'll be back at the end of the interview to talk about all the ways that you can support the podcast. Uh, but in the meantime, here's Mark. Welcome to the podcast, Mark Shearer. How are you? I'm fantastic, Chris. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. I don't know what it's like your end, but weather-wise, it's been an atrocious bank holiday Monday uh, here in Southampton. Obviously, I'm up in the Lake District and it rains all the time here anyway, so <laughs> it doesn't matter. But Southampton? Yeah. Jeez, Chris, I remember Southampton. I'm oh, good. Your, your podcast is great, by the way. Just that We were setting things up there and saying that your podcast is fantastic and you know it's really taken me back to after not being interested in you know that stuff and then it comes back yeah. to you doesn't it? and a new podcast has been great and and then obviously i know you're from southampton i don't know you chris but i know you're from southampton and um it, you know obviously you, you think of joiners and, and stuff like that you know, yeah it's great. the joiners <laughs> is still hanging in there which is great uh, for us and i know they, they they've struggled like every venue and they've well they've always yeah. struggled and we were lucky enough to play there a lot in, in my band and it was the holy yeah. grail you know for southampton and you just you just knew that once you were up on that stage, you were sharing, you know, this, the stage with so many great, fantastic bands that, that grace the stage at the Joiners. It's, um, it, it's, I remember it, and I, I can't say that about all the gigs, but uh, I remember the Joiners, and um, yeah, it, it was it was good gig. And then what was the other one we played somewhere with? Um, Guildhall, oh, Southampton Guildhall, potentially. Yes, the Guildhall, the Guildhall with them um, probably was that maybe with Sleeper or with um, with Sleeper. Long well, they both played there. I know definitely Sleeper did, um, but because I was, I didn't, I didn't make the gig, which I was gutted I think about. It was maybe Long Pigs. I think it was long we played with, played the Guildhall with Long Pigs when they were hitting it. Yeah. We did a tour with them, and we did a tour with Sleeper as well. Yeah. And um, but yeah, so I mean, I'm I'm just assuming, Chris, that I am going to be the least known name on your uh, on your podcast because that's what I was thinking about when I saw your, your podcast and all the stuff. I thought, wow. We were there, but not there, and, and and maybe maybe that's the angle for this story, Chris. You know, <laughs> absolutely. Okay, in terms of how you met and how you got together and things, what what was kind of the early seed of the band then? I come from a sort of musical family, more in a sort of in that my father's a massive record collector, um, and was in bands. He was the only unsigned band ever to appear on the Best of the Test, which was the old Grey Whistle Test. Oh TV yeah, was just great. And um, he was always in bands and stuff. And they never really made, you know, they, was, they were hanging around like with Midge Ewer from Ultravox in Glasgow studios and things like that. And they never, ever quite made it. And they were great. They were called Zoom Lens and they were phenomenally good. Um, kind of electro, post-punk, electro stuff. It was brilliant. It was really, really good. Mm. Um, but he's my primary influence without a doubt. I mean, I grew up in a house where he was literally buying, I don't know how many records a week, and he had, you know, the, this is, uh, I mean, I'm, well, we're talking late 70s, early 80s here, and he's bringing back everything, you know, everything, and continued to do so up into the 80s, and well, he still does now, but, so, I mean, my influences were massive, I mean, my first record I bought was, like, late period Sex Pistols, because it had a cartoon cover, yeah. um, 
And but I, I actually have massive gaps in my record collection from that time because my dad was buying it all. So I mean, literally yeah. everything from you know Sex Pistols and all that to like. I mean, he was playing. He's he's an old kind of prog rock guy, but he listened to punk and post punk and electro, and you know. So one minute I'm listening to Van de Graaff Generator, then we're listening to Wire, and then we're listening to Kraftwerk, who were massive in the household. I mean, I'm such a Kraftwerk head. I mean, they are mm. without doubt one of my favourite bands. You know, a lot of people come to music through a big brother or a big sister or whatever. My dad's really young. He was a young dad. There was so much that he was still excited about and that I was getting excited about. We'll listen to Zang Tum Tum records in the 80s and Grace Jones and Frankie Goes to Hollywood were massive yeah. when I was about 10 or whatever it was, you know? Yeah, and yeah. I don't have any of those. I don't have those Frankie Goes to Hollywood records because my dad bought... I honestly think he's got something like eight 12-inch remixes of of Relax and, and you know, Two Tribes and stuff. I don't have them because he was buying them, you know? Yeah, yeah. I was in the school orchestra. I played saxophone badly, you know, and that's where I met some of the guys in the band as well. And we went to this school trip, as you do, and I hung out with the older kids. I was maybe in, you know, whatever year, and, and the sixth form kids were in another room, and I could hear the music. And I thought, oh, that sounds good. And it was the Smiths. Yeah. And I, and I came home that weekend, and I said to my dad, I said, um, oh, yeah, I heard this really cool band over the weekend, you know, that, that you probably don't know. And um, he said, oh, yeah, who's that? I said, there's a band called The Smiths. And he went, oh, yeah, the, the, the bottom cupboard there, about about a third in, there's a, I've got Hatful of Hollow and Gatefold. If you want it, take it. I don't listen to it. <laughs> and I was just like, man, you just cannot be this guy. But it was great. So when I started getting into stuff, I suppose, I don't know, I, I went through a miniature goth phase that lasted about four months or something in a, in a psychedelic music. And then at this point, I met some of the guys from the band, Stephen McSeveny and his younger brother, Alan McSeveny. And we would jam and play stuff on the four track. Um, and I was really, I learned to play guitar pretty late, I suppose, but I got a four track oh, literally two months after I got a guitar. So I was bad for my guitar technique because what I couldn't play, I would just sort of play half and then overdub the other bit. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, 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 We've, oh, yeah. I've been there. <laughs> yeah, it hampers your technique, doesn't it? That's my yeah. excuse. Yeah, you know, so so I was, but I went really deep into four track. But the thing is, again, the, the stuff I was listening to at one point, I had about you know, that phase, right? You know, that phase when you've got like 15 records, and those 15 records are your world, you know, and that, mm. that's why those records mean so much to you. A couple of them are The Smiths, The Cure. I love The Cure, who doesn't love The Cure? Mm. Um, Smiths, The Cure, uh, I think The Mission, very uncool, but I, I don't, I don't care. Um, the cult again. That was when you're 14. That was fine, and uh, you know all that stuff. And and Bert Jansch, and I remember listening to Bert Jansch, and the school music teacher was throwing them out. And I like to look at the cover, and I took it home. And at first I thought, oh yeah, this folky hi hi stuff. But the guitar yeah. playing was amazing. And I remember making this point to all the guys who would be in the band pretty soon, saying, listen to this guys. This is amazing. This guy Bert Jansch. And they were like, oh, this is folky rubbish. What is this? I said, no, come on, listen. It reminds me of Johnny Marr. And they were going, oh, don't be stupid, you know? Yeah, yeah. And um, of course, years later, I was proved to be right, innit? I mean, it was like, yeah. I love it. I just love it so much. So I'm just a music head. I mean, Octopus is named after a Sid Barrett song, the first single he released after he left Pink Floyd. We were heavily into the psychedelic thing. Uh, big time. And, and I loved all that other stuff as well that led me down all those, like, you know, anti-Tinkle Tops, Magic Teapot kind of English psychedelia stuff. I loved all that. Uh, 
But I suppose contemporary stuff that the band that made it for me was My Bloody Valentine, and mm. I just I just went crazy for them. I, I literally lay on the floor um, with my head between the speakers for days listening to that record. I think the big thing that happened was I went away to university up in Dundee, and the guys stayed back, and some of them in Glasgow, and I just wrote loads of songs in four track and played saxophone through a while. I was really into John Coltrane, and I used to, and Van de Graaff generator. So I used to play these. I just used to stay at home and put my saxophone through a wah pedal and play along with John Coltrane and Van de Graaff generator. Wow. Just not go, not go to university for days, which is pretty bad. <laughs> but, um, you know, and then I came back and all the guys had been in a cover band. What were they called? Chicone Youth, Chicone Riot, something like that. And they were doing covers of like Pink Floyd and and the Ramones. And, and I filmed them at the Henderson Theatre in shots. We, we, we lived in a town right in the middle between Glasgow and Edinburgh. But I had been up north at Dundee, came back, I was studying law up there, and I came back to do my postgraduate and legal diploma. I don't know why, because I, I didn't go on to become a lawyer. I, I qualified, but I just, you know, my head was full of music, basically. Yeah, so yeah. I came back and formed a band with these guys who'd, I basically stole the cover band, as it were. And said, "Well, yeah. look, I've, I've got I've got these songs," and they were like, "Wow, these are pretty good." I was really into "Smile" at the time by you know the Beach Boys. And I wrote this song where I couldn't play piano very well, and you know how Brian Wilson obviously is just genius in piano, and he does that really vamping sort of ch 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 thing, you know, and it's just mm -hmm. so beautiful and the horns and everything. And I wrote this song, and I remember I was I think it was for my finals, and I think I had a reset probably because I you know I just scraped through. And it's probably European law, or it may have been tax law, because, I mean, come on, who wants to do tax law? <laughs> and, um, and and I remember just taking a study break and picking up guitar and doing this kind of... I, try, I, was, I was trying to write a Brian Wilson song, but I can't play piano. So I was playing these kind of high, vamping, chinking chords, and it turned into this song. And you know that, that idea where it writes itself? Yeah. And literally in that 15-minute study break, I had written Wait and See, which is not an amazing song, but to me, it was the first song that I wrote that really felt like I'd written a song. Again, I was into really luckily because my dad had the originals of the albums, was Nick Drake. I've been listening to Nick Drake since I was like 12 or something, you know? I mean, I, yeah. I, Nick Drake, I love Nick Drake. And then he became really popular. I was like, yeah, he's great. He's amazing. Yeah, but and, I was, uh, I, this thing with Nick Drake with me, it was that I, used, I was well into singer-songwriters for a, a long period of time. Mm -hmm. And then, and I hadn't I hadn't got into Nick Drake. And then someone said, well, stop listening to this, the, the, what you're listening to. And because this is a poor image, this is an imitation of the, the man, you know, you need to get on to Pink Moon. And, it, oh. and it, I, yeah, and I was sort of, you know, where have I been? This is ridiculous. Beautiful. I'm listening to all these guys that are just, you know, emulating what was, just, yeah, and a fantastic Beautiful. record, yeah. Isn't it, isn't it? And it's funny how, I mean, with certain records, I mean, I remember moments that I remember, for all I've seen, my dad's a big influence. He didn't do that, listen to this son kind of thing. You know, he let, he let you find it yourself. Yeah. I would ask, I think I asked, I think I just saw the cover and I said, what's that? And he said, oh, that's <laughs> you know. I actually remember it sitting on the dining room table. You know how you don't forget those moments? I don't know. Mm. Where was it? I was talking about, oh, yeah, I was talking about meeting up with Stephen and Alan and yeah. uh, Bob Holmes was a drummer, lovely guy, Bob. And um, I just started with these songs and wait and see, just everybody just kind of looked at me and went, whoa, that's a song, isn't it? And it's still, oh, yeah, it stole the Nick Drake chords from, from Joey in the, in the, the chorus, which I didn't realise. It's just like, a, 
A minor seventh and, and up it yeah. goes. But and that was it. I just thought this is a real song. And it, the songs just kept coming, you know. And we started playing her in Glasgow. You were talking about, or we were talking about the just before we started, the joiners in Southampton. Well, nice and sleazy in Glasgow for us, run by Meg, um, who was a great guy used to just put us on like good band bills. And then he would start to say, well, do you want to support this band that are coming through? So a real big shout out to Mig for putting us on. He, he saw something in us. And again, remember, as I said, I came down I, I, pretty late. I'm finishing university and I'm just writing these songs. And I'm thinking, well, you know, I, I had a legal, a legal traineeship set up and stuff like this. And, ah. you know, and, and then I don't know, it just all happened so fast. We probably only played in Glasgow for about a year, but we played, you know, twice, twice a month, three times a month in that year. Do you know what I mean? And, yeah, and yeah. We were literally making leaps and bounds. I mean, if you wanted to be cruel, you would say, well, you guys can hardly play, but you could also say, but whoa, you're writing these pretty good songs. And, and we had a sound and we were doing stuff that was one minute we were doing like Brian Olsen, Rinky Dink style pop tunes. The next minute we were doing like, eight minute long kind of space jams and drop D tuning, yeah. you know, so we, we didn't so that, have a signature soon. When you were rehearsing and, and, and like coming together as a band, were there yeah. moments when, and I often ask this in the podcast, were there moments when you were kind of looking at each other and I guess you were, you were coming with songs as well and you were on a bit of a writing marathon, I guess, in some ways. And yeah. Was there moments we were thinking, okay, this is, this is starting to work. This is fitting now. We're starting to sound like, you know, octopus. Yeah, definitely. Although, I mean, yes, yes and no. I mean, I think one of the things, one of the reasons we never went on was, well, there's a million reasons, isn't it? It's, it's all those beautiful pieces of the jigsaw puzzle that need to coalesce, don't yeah. they, really? But, um, and, or to have that one song, which we didn't quite have. I mean, you're right. There'd be moments where I would bring a song in and it would, we'd either just nail it and I'd go, it goes like this, you play that, you play this, you know, play around with it if you want, but I'm hearing this, this and this. And everybody was pretty happy because it did sound good. It sounded poppy. And I like pop. It was not a dirty word. Remember in Glasgow at the time, everybody wanted to be slint, you know, and yeah. it was the, the American thing. Everybody, Glasgow was pretending it was Chicago at the time. And of course, we got absolutely slated for singing an English accent. But I mean, if what was I listening to? I'm named after Mark Bolan. My dad named me after Mark Bolan with a C. I'm listening <laughs> Sid Barrett, we've named the band after Sid Barrett. I'm listening to Julian Cope. You know, we've already <laughs> talked about Nick Drake. Yeah, you know, yeah. I'm listening to Soft Machine and Robert Wyatt, and people are saying, oh, you're singing an English accent. Well, there's a surprise. <laughs> and yet, for, for some reason, it's all right for the Glasgow bands to, you know, I didn't realise that Primal Scream were from Memphis. You know. Well, and, this is it, you see. This is the, the, this is the fine line. Los Angeles. You know, yeah, but yeah. that's all right. But as soon as we start singing in English, way, hey, hey, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but you know, that's just that's that's what happens, isn't it? Once we got there, there was a band I was really into at the time called Levitation, who was Terry Bickers' band after he'd left House of Love. Yeah, yeah. Remember? Yeah. So I mean, obviously, I liked House of Love or whatever. But they split up, and then this new band. Of course, it was right up my street because we'd already been plowing this sort of psychedelic furrow. You know, we're, we're in there, all that stuff. I remember we went to the roller coaster tour primarily to see um, My Bloody Valentine. It was My Bloody Valentine, Jesus Mary Chain, Dinosaur Jr. and Blur. And I remember thinking, Blur, what are they doing? <laughs> and we watched that gig, the Glasgow SEC, myself, Stephen and Alan, I think Bob was probably there as well. And I remember turning to Stephen and going, oh my God, they're into Sid Barrett. 
Yeah, you know, yeah. so I remember people saying, oh, you're just copying blood. And well, you know, I understand that. But to be fair, we were totally into that whole psychedelic thing and had been for a few years before we'd even heard blood. Yeah, um, yeah. I think I'd heard, I'd heard them do There's No Other Way or something like that. And that was fine. It was a kind of baggy thing. It was all right. And I thought they were great. And I do, and I still do. I think they're fantastic. You know, but again, that's one of the reasons why we never made it. Because if you're coming up at a time where you've got super furry animals and blur, who yeah. pretty much are my favourite Britpop bands. You know, I, I really liked Oasis when they first came out. I thought it sounded so fresh and I just laughed at the T-Rex rip-offs and stuff and thought, this is this is funny, you know, and Liam yeah. looked great. And, you know, but I tired pretty quickly with Oasis. But I think Super Furries and Blur, just great. You know, yeah. I mean, what a great band. And of course, we were probably somewhere in the middle, but but not as good as either. <laughs> you know? So we were scuppered. But in terms of getting a live following, though, into uh, back home, before you kind of made the jump to London to sort of pursue, well, the record deal and to, well, you were signed and then you moved. Is that right? Or were you, was it the other way around? Yeah, well, I mean, so what happened was we were playing in Glasgow a lot. We were starting to get a bit of a following. But again, this is all within a year. So it's not yeah. as if we'd been playing for years and like, oh, yeah, they finally, you know, no. This, this literally happened in a year. We went, to, I was mentioning Levitation. I went to see them live. I loved them. They were supporting the Sugar Cubes, um, who I also love, Bjork. I just love Bjork, still mm-hmm. do. And um, I went to the toilets in the Barland and I saw this guy from Levitation. I went, hey, hey, how you doing? And I said, yeah, I'm actually here. I love Sugar Cubes, but I'm here to see you guys as much as I am them. I just love Levitation, great band. And he said, oh, come, come, come and have a, have a chat. So the next day, I didn't even realise I was standing beside the, um, you know, the backstage, but he um, takes me and introduces me to the guys in the band and asked, and gave me a beer, and of course I'm, I'm loving it, you know. <laughs> this is the band that I really like, and and he said, "Hey, do you want to? You know, we're playing in King Tut's in a couple of weeks." I said, "I know, I know." He said, "Oh, we'll put you on the guest list." I already had a ticket, but I took the guest list anyway, you know. And yeah. and I had a tape in my pocket, and I gave him a tape, and I said, "Here, here's a tape." And of course, it's it's not what you think. It was not a tape of Octopus. It was a tape that I had made up to give to Stephen. Minkus, as he's known, uh, bass player in Octopus. And it was full of craft work. Eamon Dool, Noya. Basically, one side was kraut rock, and the other side was ambient stuff, Aphex Twin, Brian Eno, just the orb, all the stuff that we loved. Yeah. And, and it was key for him. And I'd, of course, they read out the t- and they were like, wow, this is a great tape. I got, I made up friends with, with Dave, and this is pre internet, really. You know, this is just pre internet. So, there was phone calls and letters and tapes exchanged and stuff like that. And after a couple of months, he said, how come you know so much about music, but you're not in a band? Yeah. Of course, I wasn't a band. I was just too nervous to tell him. <laughs> yeah. You know, so this whole idea of passing on a tape, it wasn't my tape. It was a, a compilation, you know, it was a mixtape. And, and I said, well, I am in a band, really. And he was like, I'd love to hear some stuff. I was like, yeah. And we'd only done some four tracks and maybe one session in Glasgow. And um, I said, okay, I'll send you. I sent him some stuff and on it was a song Saved. And he got back saying, did you write that? And I said, yeah, I wrote it. You know, but, but did you write it? I said, of course I wrote it. And um, he said, it's the best song I've heard in ages. Um, I, I want to produce it and blah, blah, blah. So Dave became our manager, a guy called Dave Francolini. He was a drummer in Levitation. And at the time, Dave and I were just, it was just a wonderful friendship and the whole thing, you know, and he was connected in London. He was living down in London and he was very much in and around what was going on. 
you know? Yeah. So he was really a connection. He was he was the guy that got signed. I mean, did you get like A and R interest, or was there like a, a period of time where you were, you were getting contacted from quite yeah, a few I mean, from a few labels? Yeah, we already had interest in Glasgow anyway, and with people like Meg putting us on and Fiona Shepherd writing about us, it's only a matter of time. I mean, if you want to look at it another way, when Dave introduced us, we jumped at it, and he took us to, there was loads of A&R people, there was about five labels trying to sign us at the time, and of course I made the mistake of signing with Parlophone, because this hindsight's a wonderful thing. Yeah. But I was such a Beatles fan, you know, I mean, proper, I had the, you know, the, the, 24 cassettes of bootlegs and and you know the, the 19 versions of strawberry fields and the you know all the george harrison outtakes and you know i was such a beatles fan and you know parlophone come on what are you going to do you get a chance to send a parlophone you know yeah. food parlophone emi and i was such a kate bush fan and such a craftwork fan and talk talk fan and i was just going imagine being in the same level as those guys that's just nuts so unfortunately I let that kind of take over when really what it should have done was was go with a label that was more matched to our ability at the time, you know? I mean, we mm. were just like, these were the first songs I'd ever written and hear their talk of them being signed, recorded and put on a record, you know, which is fine. Um, and of course, you go to the bottom of the pile on EMI. You know, I remember going into mm. EMI building, it was so excited and someone was like, who are you? And I said, I'm Mark from Octopus. And, right, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> You know what I mean? Whereas yeah. if it's signed a smaller label, you know, they would they would have wanted to make you work. EMI didn't really care if we worked or not, really. You know, I mean, Andy was great. You know, Mike Smith was fantastic. You know, I mean, there was a lot of great, great people who really, really helped us out there. And So in terms of the process of recording uh, that album then, did you think, did you feel that it was you being maybe potentially treated slightly differently at that time? Or were you just going well and truly with the flow at this point? Well, I mean, up in Glasgow, we'd, we'd done things like um, Isabel Campbell, who went on to play with Belle and Sebastian. In fact, I, I was in a taxi with her the, the night she met the guy um, and formed Belle and Sebastian. She was talking about it, saying, oh, I've met this guy, I'm going to do some stuff. She was playing cello with, with us at the time to try and, and all the stuff we'd been recording up there was quite free form. And, you know, and we had Bob on drums, we had Lawrence Wedlock on trumpet. Yeah. Um, Jim Donaldson on trumpet, Effie Fenton on flute. So we were quite free form. And when we when we signed with uh, EMI, they, Andy didn't say anything. I, I later found out that really what Andy likes is power pop. So he loved songs like we did songs like Magazine and stuff, which were like you know two and a half minutes of you know uh, you know teen angst uh, guitar pop. You know, yeah, yeah. And I like a bit of that, but it's not where my heart is really. But I'd realised it's where Andy's heart is. You know, he loves that stuff. You know, he, mm. you know, is it Bob Hund is his favourite favourite band from there. And of course, Blur cater to that taste for him as well, don't they? I mean, they did the fair share of that spiky guitar, punk, post-punk guitar noise that Andy really loves. And yeah, I love that as well, but it's not what I was really writing, you mm. know? Um, but I have to be honest and say they didn't really put any pressure on us until the second album. First album, they just let us. I kind of wish they had put pressure on us for the first album. Because yeah. the first album, thanks to Dave, I mean, the deal pretty much was he got us the record deal and, you know, we would let him produce it. And I was I was happy to do that. You know, you could maybe say, well, maybe we, you should have taken someone with more experience. It felt right at the time. So it's, it's all good, you know? Yeah, but yeah. we just... They were really just extensions of my demos. They were my de In fact, Your Smile was recorded in Sawmills. And we went to Sawmills because of the Dukes of Stratosphere, XTC. Um, 
that's why we went there. We later found out that Oasis had gone there. Um, but we went there and they really were just fancy recordings of my demos. We would play the demo and then go, right, let's go. In fact, so much so that Your Smile, um, which was a pretty big song off that album, if, if, if I can say that. Um, this, there's a guitar solo in it, which is actually me playing the guitar in my kitchen in Glasgow um, on the four track. Oh, yeah. doing it, you know. and, and, and it came, came to the point for Alan to learn the guitar solo. And he said, what did you do? I said, I don't know. I just played something, did it backwards. And, and so we listened to it and realized that we were still in the same tempo. So the engineer just flew in my kitchen recording. So, you know, and if you listen to the actual title track from A to B, it's a demo from a basement somewhere. Yeah. And you can, it's, it's so badly done in one level, but it's, it's, it's so naive and, you know, and another level that I quite liked. And so there was no pressure. Nobody listened to it and, and said, you know, this is, you know, some of it was, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying it didn't sound good. Some of it sounded great. And I have to say, um, you know, bearing in mind that we were hardly virtuoso musicians, you know? So mm. sometimes I was just pleased for it to sound the way it did. You touched on earlier on about the second record and writing new material and things. Obviously, you would have been on the mad sort of um, the, the touring process for that record and the PR and, and everything else. But were you finding it quite difficult or under any pressure to, to keep writing and come up with ideas at that stage as well? In a way, yes. The, the unfortunate thing was once that magical period of, of, of getting signed, going to sawmills, doing all the record and then going on tour, um, once that had sort of subsided and I was listening to the record and I thought, okay, so here's our album. I didn't tell anybody at the time, but I didn't like it. Oh God. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, it's a bit of a, bit of a, you know, bit of a shocker, but I, and I certainly didn't say it at the time because how can you, you can't, you know, looking back on it, I didn't realize how many bands had actually re-recorded the first album, but Oasis did it three times. Who was it? Somebody on your podcast recently was saying they re-recorded the whole thing again. I didn't know you could do that. You know, I kind of wish we'd done that. Certainly as well, we went on tour. And of course, the irony is when we came off tour, we could then play. You know, we learned so fast. Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, some of the, I've got some live tapes that, that are great, you know. And you think, wow, we were actually all right on a good night. You know, we were absolutely terrible at certain points as well. Obviously, who isn't? But... You know, I just felt I was promoting something that, and again, I realised that we were being put in with the Britpop thing and we were at the end of it. There was a really funny funny story was, um, what's the journalist's name? John Harris released a book, The Last Party, and it's yeah. about Britpop. You read it? I know it, but I have not read it. Right, so I, I saw it in a bookshop and I thought, oh yeah, and it's a, it's a fairly decent sized thing. So I thought, you know, and, and your vanity kicks in and you go, I wonder. And I looked at the, um, you know, I looked at the back to see under O, 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 Oh my God, we're in the book, we're in it. Because we get no press, everybody hated us. You know, it's, the Scottish press hated us for le leaving Glasgow and going to London. The London press hated us because, I don't know, we just arrived without anybody ever having heard of us and here we were on EMI. Do you know what I mean? We had yeah. no press. It's just, it's just unfortunate. You can see why I understand it, but at the time it was like, what have we done? You know? And um, so I look at John Harris's book, I see, I go, wow, he mentioned it. So I get it, page, page 479, and he says, you know, this really was the arse end of Britpop. There'd be a whole slew of bands like, la, 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 and it was just this list 
of also Ryan Bynes. I thought, okay, that's my entry in the uh, <laughs> oh god, in the Brit pop story. But it was great. So second album, we, as I said, Andy was power pop. I was really into electronic stuff and also just epic stuff. When I look back on it, if we'd kept going, the big next big thing would have been the whole thing was flaming lips and stuff like that. And I was basically writing. I was writing epic pop with big strings, drum loops. Um, we had this song called Lose It, which I didn't realise was a Supergrass song because I don't think I'd even listened to the Supergrass album a year after it had been out. I don't know, but uh, Lose It had written and 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 I just thought, finally, I've done it. I've written a pop single that is, is going to just be an absolute banger. Played it to friends. It was based on, I believe it or not, a Soft Machine Sid Barrett sample, which makes it sound not poppy, but it was. And it was drum beats. It was almost... I don't listen to it very much, but I remember thinking last time I listened, it, it was almost, almost Happy Mondays in a strange way, but more electronic. It had a real loping, dancing feel, which nothing in the first album did. You couldn't dance to it. I remember turning up at a nightclub one time after a gig and the DJ thinking, oh, Octopus are here, put on your smile and the dance floor cleared. You know? <laughs> um, which is pretty funny, but also indicative of the situation. You know, you got to think yeah. of these things. Didn't, everything was mid-tempo, head nod, Sid Barrett, Beach Boys, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. So, so this stuff was, that, Lose It was an absolute banger. And I think this was the straw that broke the, the camel's back, to use a horrendous cliche. Was played it to Andy, and he went, hmm. And I thought, well, what do you mean? Oh, it's, it's an absolute, <laughs> the opening lines were buying petrol to see the country. Right, it was a song. It was a song ostensibly about environment, but all sorts of stuff. It was. I was really proud of the lyrics. Um, it was upbeat. It was danceable. It, everybody I played it to just went, "Oh my god!" And I was like, it's, "It's a banger, right? It's a banger." And we were up for. We had Hugo Nicholson in line to produce it, who'd done Primal Screams, Higher Than the Sun, and stuff like that. And then we went with Marcus Drafts because I'm such a Brian Eno head and Bjork head, and he'd worked with Brian Eno Bjork. But it. I don't know what happened, but it just didn't happen. You know, it was, it was just bizarre. So it, it just all fell to bits quite quickly um, with, with nobody being interested in the, you know, in the, the sort of new direction, which was dancey or just big epic songs. A la, yeah. You know, two years later, who comes along? But um, Flaming Lips and I just kind of, you know, pointed and went, um, sound familiar? That knockback then, was that something that, you were already sort of thinking, where am I going? What what are we going to do here at that situation? Or, or would you kind of thought at that stage you were going to still persevere? Yeah, it was just really weird. It was just like going into sludge, you know. And I suppose, I don't know, I mean, you know, I think as well, I was really keen. I mean, really, we're talking, what, 96, the album came out. And by 96, Britpop really was as a thing, really was out, wasn't it? And I suppose... That's one of the downsides of being on food, you know, and associated with blur and stuff like that. Um, that, you know, you really, you were, and this, the stuff that we were making was not Britpop, you know, it was, um, I guess, what was it? it? It was just, it was just dancey oh. pop, psychedelic pop. You weren't 100 miles away from, you say you've said, you've talked about super furry animals, but you were definitely in the same campsite as they were, yeah. you know? Yeah, I mean, they did, they did it so well, you know, and, and again, I was taking it, um, I remember, funnily enough, I used to run this night up in um, 
I, I, we got a studio and I, I turned it into like a nightclub as well and stuff like that. And through the early, late, late 90s and early 2000s, it was the scene of, of many great, I had the Libertines in my living room, um, Imitation Electric Piano, Hot Chip, um, all played in my living room, uh, Fortet, Kieran DJ'd several times. But I remember oh um, Griff uh, came because he was friends of some of the people who, who lived with me. And I used to see Griff quite a bit. It was always nice to see him. Uh, and I remember one night he said, uh, and I just said to him, I said, Griff, I've got to get this over with, but I just love your band, man, because, um, you know, you kind of you kind of do the stuff that I've been doing, but you do it better. <laughs> and oh. he said, oh, man, I, I, I listen to uh, From A to B, and uh, I don't know why I'm putting on this ridiculous accent, um, because he has <laughs> such, a, such a wonderful accent. And he said, um, he said, it's such a brave album. And I remember being really, really pleased with that. And I thought, oh, that's really sweet, you know. But actually, yeah. look back, he may have been saying something else. He may have been saying, whoa, you put that out on EMI? <laughs> so who knows, you know? But I, that's where we went. And then, and then we got dropped, and that was it. We were dropped because there, was, there were no two-and-a-half-minute punk-pop songs. Mm -hmm. um, we'd written a whole load of stuff. The thing is, unless there was an absolute bona fide international pop moment, which there probably wasn't, then... I don't think it would have mattered what I'd written, to be honest, because I think we'd spent so much money with the first album, you know, on the album cover with the pop-out sleeve, touring as an eight-piece band, going to Japan twice, you know, we must have spent a fortune, you know, just in hotels and travel and, and stuff alone, um, and obviously not making it back. I mean, what saved got to number 40. Your Smile got to 42, and we used to meet this guy at these EMI sales conference things, and there was a big Scottish guy, and he used to say, I'm really sorry about your smile, big man. And I'd say, ah, it's all right. You know, 42 is not bad. We'll get higher with the next one, because it was all, you know, sales conference. Yeah. Oh, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. And I'd go, that's oh, fine, fine. And then we'd go maybe two months later to another one, and I'd see this guy. Ah, oh, big man, hey, I'm really sorry about your smile, you know. And I think <laughs> he may even have done it a third time at something. And I said to our manager at the time, I said, who is that guy? And why does he keep apologizing? We've released two singles since then. You know, yeah. and he said, "Oh, yeah, I didn't want to tell you." And I was like, "What?" He's like, "Well, he's he's in charge of uh, distribution at, at EMI, and um, your smile wasn't in fifty percent of the shops in the first week of sale. So obviously, that affected oh, your Jesus chances. Jesus Christ! <laughs> <laughs> so we got to forty-two, and it was only in half the shops. So again, I remember the band going, "That means we would have got top 20. It's like, nah, it means it's never going to be. Yeah, that's what it means. Oh God! Know? But you can tell yourself you know, apart with that sort of thing, can't you? You can, and it's pointless. You know, I mean, that that whole thing was just the whole out. You know, until the end, when you realise that actually, no, they just don't want you. Did you find that other bands rallied around you and supported you? Was there kind of like that network there? No, not really. I mean, we got so little press that um, I, I don't think it would have would have mattered. Um, yeah. Anybody would have noticed it. There wasn't really, it was only ever the bands that we played with. I mean, we really were just on an absolute full-on hard day's night, you know, Beatles on repeat, um, roller coaster, um, and really riding it for all it was worth. And we were very insular because there was there was eight of us, you know, there was a big, you know, and we weren't, I mean, there was the famous story of space when we played with space. Um, and again, it's the bittersweet thing. Radio One wanted to interview me and and I thought, great, because we've got a single coming out and it's daytime Radio One. What they really wanted to talk to me about was the fact that 
when we, in fact, I think this was in Southampton, or was it Portsmouth, one of the unis, we supported space, we'd been done four or five dates with them, our keyboard player Mike had realised that that um, there's a song in their set where the band goes off and Space's keyboard player does this big ravey thing with all these keyboards and stuff. And Mike said, you know, he just plays a CD. <laughs> and we were like, no, come on. And he's like, no, he plays a CD. He said, it's in the, it's in the, it's there in his keyboard rack. <laughs> and so the last night of the tour, we thought it would be fun, you know, talking about camaraderie, because <laughs> we got on okay with them. We thought it'd be fun to put in the Octopus CD. So we put in, or Mike put in the Octopus CD and he, he cued it to the same track that they did, which I think was track six or whatever, right? Yeah. So he had it cued as exactly as, as he'd seen it done nights before. We all went up onto the balcony of this university gig. It was Portsmouth or Southampton, something like that. And I remember this guy coming up. I mean, somebody must have liked us because I remember this guy coming up going, hey, you're from Octopus, you've just played. That was amazing. I loved it. Oh, I was like, thanks, 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 thanks. But shh, just, just listen, just listen. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you want to see the band? I was like, no, no, this, this might be quite funny. And lo and behold, the guy turned to me and went, that's Octopus. Because <laughs> Octopus could come out of the speakers. So we thought it was funny. Uh, the crowd are going, huh? The keyboard player's obviously losing his mind. Mike left their CD there so he could find it. We went on the bus and it was our tour manager Sasha's birthday. So we were drinking champagne on the bus and the next thing the bus has been hit and there's space outside there <laughs> uh, challenging us to a fight. So <laughs> you know, I, I remember saying, I remember saying, where's your scouse sense of humor? You know, come on, we were having a laugh. A laugh, that's not a laugh. Yeah. We thought, well, we thought it was funny. <laughs> um, so <laughs> oh, no, so that's that not... was about the camaraderie, you know, and we, you just didn't see anybody. I mean, I think I had a couple of beers with Graham and the good mixer, you know, like once or twice. Um, I, I remember that. You never saw anybody. You just hmm. didn't see anybody. I remember meeting Brett Anderson. He was in the dressing room beside me in a stable we were only separated by a curtain because it was a stable that's how I could see him you know I was like oh hello and I remember speaking to him and saying oh we were in Japan with you because we went to Japan and he just looked at me you know and I thought all right fair enough just trying to be nice oh, so you dear. know I just I just didn't have the um I was such a bad networker as well you know I just I just so sort of for a loud mouth I'm quite shy you know do you, do you see any kind of um, any chance of you guys getting back together for some any kind of reunion show? Is that ship's well and truly sailed now? I think it's well and truly sailed, and I think um, there's only a handful of songs that I would that I would be happy to play because some of those songs were written uh, at two o'clock in the morning, started recording at three, and finished maybe two days later, and you know <laughs> that yeah. was it. Played. Played for a couple of months. I, I don't know what those songs are anymore, except for a couple like Your Smile, which was a song I wrote for my friend Ron Mason in, in Glasgow. Really means a lot to me because I was watching him. He's he's a solicitor and we obviously trained together doing that. And he took that path and I took another path. And I was writing this song saying, look, you know, I'm doing this and you're doing that, but, you know, we'll always be mates and lo and behold, we are. And that's what Your Smile's about. You know, don't, it's easy to lose with every mile, Your Smile. And, so I, I would happily play that again. It's a good song. Saved is a is possibly my favourite. I'd happily play Saved again because the lyrics are stolen from J.D. Salinger. Not all, just a couple of lines. Um, the song was my attempt at doing a Cocteau Twins song during the Britpop era. 
you know, um, mm -hmm. when really I was thinking cocktail twins, I wasn't thinking, I didn't know what Britpop was at the time. And, and I just love it. It just, it's, it's one of, you know, one of the songs that I'm not embarrassed by. <laughs> um, yeah. I think it's a good song. You know, I, for, for years I went past saying, oh, it's all rubbish, it's rubbish, I hate it, I hate it. Well, that's not true. There's a couple of lovely gems there. But it was great. It really was, Chris. It was absolutely fantastic. And, and again, all the people that helped, you know, that, that were there. Do you know what I mean? All the guys mm. from Shorts and, and the guys that helped us in Glasgow and Dave, who really helped us early on. And, you know, it was just, it was, it was great. You know, there's, there's no way you can, you know, and I still do music. I still enjoy it. That's what I'm yeah. saying. So there's, you know, it's all good. It's all good. Well, Mark, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you about Octopus and everything else in between. And it's really great to hear an insight of 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 what, what happened to you and how it affected you and, and when it uh, all goes wrong. <laughs> and the well, no, the candid way that you've spoken about it is is is, is amazing. Chris, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. That was absolutely lovely. Much appreciated. Cheers, yeah. Chris. Take care. Yeah. Bye bye. Once again, massive thank you to Mark for joining me on the on the episode. It was a really interesting conversation about his experiences with Octopus uh, through the 90s. He's been incredibly busy ever since, uh, being involved in numerous musical projects, which is fantastic to see. If you want to follow me on social media, you can. Just search for Back to Britpop on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. If you haven't yet rated the podcast or left a review, that is super helpful. So I'd really appreciate it if, if you could do that on any app that you're listening to uh, the podcast on again if you want to say thanks and buy me a coffee you can do that as well and the link to my ko-fi page is in the show notes and you can just follow the link and do that if you want and again a massive thank you to everybody that listens every week uh, i'm really enjoying putting this season together and getting guests is really hard sometimes um, but well worth it and i'm hoping that we'll continue to do a few more episodes in this season and uh, see how it goes. But thanks again for listening. Really appreciate it. Take care. Bye.